0: Thanks again uh, for being here this morning. We're going to continue in our study of Romans, and so I would hope that you could turn there in your uh, Bible or in your bulletin. And uh, we're going to read this short passage, Romans 8:12 through 17, and uh, then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. So now here are God's Word. Uh, it's on page 7 in your bulletin and in your Bible as well, Romans 8, 12 through 17. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact... Together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his sufferings. This is the word of the Lord. Um, the book of Romans is truly amazing, and I hope you all have enjoyed this time that we're spending in it. It's, uh, it's the kind of book that I uh, Sinclair Ferguson, one of my professors from seminary, uh, he preached 80 sermons on the book of uh, Revel, Rev, uh, book of Romans. Sorry, book of Revelations. He only did 25. Go figure that. Uh, so, I think Martin Lloyd Jones preached for what two, three years through the book of Romans. Yeah, it was crazy stuff. You can go down so deep in the book of Romans that it just becomes. I mean, it's glorious, but it's also exhausting. It's exhausting for the person doing the work, but it's also, I think, exhausting for the congregation. So I've chosen to take a little higher look at it, kind of 30,000 feet. And so remember that Paul is laying out a theology of the world around him. What is going on? How is the church stuck, if you will, in this world and how is it supposed to live in this world and what's wrong with people? Why is the world the way it is and how come the church is the way it is? It seems so, so, I don't know, convoluted and there's so much strife and difficulty it seems in life and in, even in life in the church where we're supposed to be a refuge and yet it's oftentimes exhausting to be a Christian you can just get worn down to a, a nub and you think oh, this is not so great Jesus says come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden I mean really is he even listening because our hearts cry out and the reason is we live in a really messed up and broken world and Paul is very clear God did not make this world the way it is we made it this way and it's time for Christians especially to take responsibility for the way the world is. It's not the way it is because of sinners over here and sinners over there and sinners everywhere. It's because the church oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes fails in its mission to be salt and light. So Paul starts the book of Romans, eight, chapter 1, 18 through 32, He explains why the human race is in its condition. It's because because we have suppressed the truth and replaced it with a lie. This is commonly called idolatry. It's the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. They took the truth that God had told them, eat only from the tree of life, not the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil, only that, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They refused to believe it And they suppressed that truth under the urging of the serpent. They suppressed it and they replaced it with a lie. And the lie was, God's word is not true. He's holding back from you. He's really not created a good world. You can make it good. You can make it even better. You can be like God Himself. And so they took, they ate. And we live in the consequences of that. Not of their sin, but of the consequence of their sin, death. And so Paul goes on in chapter 2 and 3 of Romans, he explains that all people, religious Jews, religious Gentiles, everybody are under the weight and sentence of death. We know it because he gave us the law, and the law shows us what's wrong with us. We don't even accept that. We don't even like God to tell us you've got cancer. We want to go on, ignorant. And so we kick back against the law. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul makes this amazing statement. I I just don't know if there's a a more mind-blowing statement in the Bible, chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation or satisfaction, as a sacrifice. Someone who did it right when everyone else had done it wrong. He put forth His Son as a propitiation by His blood. He didn't just come into this world and show us a good example of what it means to be a good person and and be nice and be kind and show everybody how nice it is. Propitiation in His blood to be received by faith. God does this purely out of grace just because He loves us. When you get to heaven and you say, how come I'm here? He's going to say, because I loved you. Why did you love me? Just loved you. I just love you. Well, I got to have a reason. The reason is I love you. There is no reason for Him to love. What, what, are we crazy? Are we insane? We think there's reasons for Him to love us? What is so lovely about us? Now on Sunday morning, we dress nice, we look good. I mean, I've said this before. We put on our best face. But this is a God that knows us down to the bottom. And so in chapter 4 of Romans, he said, even the father of the faithful, the father of faith, Abraham, even he needed this kind of justification. Even though his life was a demonstration of righteousness, he still needed to be justified or made right with God by faith. There's no other way. And in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he explains to us this glorious union that we have with Jesus where the power of sin is broken in chapter 3 he says propitiation took away the penalty in 5 and 6 he explains that God has taken away the power as well because we were united with Christ in baptism we were crucified with him in some mysterious way on the cross we died when he died and when he rose we rose and our justification is in that truth And so you rejoice. At the end of 6, you think, hallelujah, we're free, we're free. And then it comes chapter 7. And in 7, he says, yeah, we're free, all right. But we still are living in the presence of sin. Penalty gone, power broken, presence still here. Why he left us here, why he didn't just, the day you, you became a Christian, he didn't just, you know, take you up to heaven. I don't know. I wish he'd have done that don't you? Yeah, just get me out of here. But then, if he had taken me out of here, where would you all be? (laughs) Right, Dawson? Where would they be, man? You and I would be up there going, hey, (laughs) I think about it. How did you come to know Jesus? Somebody told you, or you were raised in a Christian home. How does God build his kingdom? For goodness sakes. He lives us here, he leaves us here, so that we can live a redemptive life. Representing him, suffering, that's what he talks about in this verse, suffering for him. And it's only a a moment, he says. This momentary uh, grief and suffering is not to be compared with the glory that awaits us. But yes, you will suffer. And I think this just goes against everything in our DNA as Americans in the West because we do not believe that. Even the church doesn't believe that. There are very few churches in the country today that will tell you suffering is good for you. It is good that we suffer this way not good that we have cancer this is not the kind of suffering he's talking about he's talking about suffering redemptively where you give your life for others your children my goodness we have parents in this church that have are, are just given everything for their kids grandparents who are, are still living and trying to help their children along people that go and work in government and in schools and in hospitals and produce music. I mean, what does this do to you when you come to church and you hear this? I don't know about you. This, our music just goes with me all week long. I take my bulletin home. I sing by myself in the morning. It's a good thing I'm by myself. The beauty of art. Look around you in this church. The beautiful artwork by Dave and Ramey and others. We've got uh, uh, Rhonda. Unbelievable. God has created a good world, a good world worth redeeming, worth suffering for. And so we should be glad that He left us here. We're just a little group, a remnant. I mean, there's no other Christians. Outside of this room, everybody's lost. You know I'm kidding. But in a way, I'm not. We've got to go out there and get people. Bring them to this glorious God. This is what he's talking about in chapter 8. And 1 through 11 of chapter 8, he says, There is no condemnation. In other words, there's nothing in your way any longer to stop you from living a full and grateful and glorious life right now, even in the midst of suffering. Come what may, let it come. There is no condemnation because we have been set free from the law of sin and death. Sin and death does not have a hold on you anymore. I did a funeral left yesterday for a well-known family lady here in El Paso, 97 years old. Husband was 98, is 98. And I met the family, I knew the, the family in high school, I went to school with one of the young ladies. And they asked me to do this funeral. Amazing life. This woman lived a life you cannot believe. Of philanthropy. Generosity. Beauty. She was an artist. An athlete. She was uh, an incredible mother. Raised four beautiful children. And I was there. I saw children. Grandchildren. And great grandchildren. A legacy. Unbelievable. All of them good, solid people. And within a generation or two, nobody will remember anybody. They're gone. We're all gone. He tells us there's no condemnation. Paul demonstrates the impossibility of us being redeemed one day and then condemned the next and redeemed one day and then condemned the next condemnation no kind of based on how you act well I was really good this day like this woman she lived a 97 year productive life and, but how many Christians move from that back and forth I'm condemned because of my behavior then they get things rolling again start acting right, doing right, being right and then that lasts for a hot minute Did I use it right? Yeah, Dawson taught me to say that. Hot minute. (laughs) Not just a minute. A hot minute. I love that. Hot minute, hot minute. I'm going to say it all the time now. Anyway, think about that. So your goodness lasts a hot minute. Big deal. No condemnation to those that are in it. Never. No more. It's gone. Destroyed. And then... 12 through 17, he says something that is mind-blowing. Yeah, as if he hasn't said enough mind-blowing things in this book. But he says something that I think if we would start, I, I don't know how to put it, like a, driving this down like a, uh, like a stake in the ground, deep, deep to hold you in place like an anchor for your soul, the reality that you have been adopted he didn't just free us from our sin we weren't just in a courtroom and he bangs the gavel and says okay not guilty you can go now goodbye go do better and I'm watching he bangs the gavel he says you're not guilty and then he steps down and he goes to his lawyer Jesus and he tells this lawyer Jesus I want to adopt this person I don't want to just set them free so they can go out there and be uh, just another. I want them in my family and I want you, Jesus, to prepare a place for them in our house. Now even a Presbyterian can shout amen at something like that. There you go. Think about it. Not just free from sin. No, no, I want you. I don't know why he wants me. I'm sure I don't know why he wants Hugo. I don't know why he wants you. I don't know why he wants any of us in his house with our mess. But he does. And he does everything with a smile. God is gleaming at us with glory and, and pleasure and acceptance. He is not holding his nose, for goodness sakes. And if we could get over that, we would be free. And that's what this chapter, the spirit of adoption, is all about. Jesus Christ set us free, even though we're still in the presence of sin. We are living in the presence of sin, not as just sinners, which we love to say, I'm just a sinner. But how many of us say, you know, I'm a son. And I'm not saying daughter, because I'll explain that in a moment. This is what J.I. Packer says. If you haven't got this book, you should buy it. Uh, Doctor Packer's dead, but I, I had the privilege of, of studying under him in a little bit at seminary. He came for a couple of courses there and and taught. And uh, his chapter in this book, "Knowing God," on the, the, the on the on the gospel uh, on the sons of God. Actually, here it is, starting on page 181. If you want to know, his book. And this chapter, "Sons of God," is. I don't know. It's just, you've got to read it. It takes you to a place you can't believe. And here's what Dr. Packer said. The, the whole chap, the whole book is like this, the, this chapter in particular. Were I asked to focus the New Testament message, only J.I. Packer could do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to distill the whole New Testament message for you, he says, in three words. My proposal would be, here's the three words, adoption through propitiation. In other words, you were brought into the family, adopted as sons, at the expense, the propitiation of a son. We were adopted, we're not really sons, by the real son, the only begotten, the monogene, the only one. He stepped into that place for us to make room so that we could be adopted. And I, this is Packer saying this, (laughs) it's not me, I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than this. Adoption through propitiation. Adoption, he says, is the greatest blessing. He says it's even greater than justification. Justification is important, but... To be adopted is the highest blessing. There's no other blessing in the Bible as high as God coming and telling us, You're my son. Ladies, don't get nervous. I'm going to get to it in a minute. You're my son. In the Greco Roman world that Paul was writing to, and even in the ancient Near East, adoption occurred when a wealthy person or someone that had something to pass on didn't have an heir. So they would adopt somebody, usually a servant that grew up in their house, always a male. Listen, never a female, always a male. A child, a youth, mostly an adult. And several things became true of them right away on the day that the papers were drawn up and they were adopted. Listen, first, they were given a new name and they became heir of all the father has. In other words, he didn't carve out a little bit and say, ah, you don't get this. No, he got everything. Everything the father had was passed on to this adopted son. And therefore, that son had a new status. No longer slave, but no longer just free, but son, family, mine. I'm yours, you're mine. The father was responsible then to cancel all the debts and liabilities, even if it cost him money, all the legal obligations, anything that was against this person, the father made right. The father was then also liable, listen, for any future misdeeds, liabilities, debts, whatever the adopted son did, good or bad, accrued to the new father. But this new status, this is where Paul is going with this, this new status also meant new obligations for the son new duties, new uh, passions, new loves, new loyalties, new uh, allegiances. Think about that. You have new status and that new status makes you a new person and that new person now has obligations to the father but not merely because we owe him the slave that was adopted couldn't pay the father there was no money in the world if he had enough money to do it there was a way to pay for yourself and get out of slavery the whole idea is he couldn't do that and yet how many Christians live on the burden under the burden of a debtor what John Piper calls the debtor's ethic I owe I owe I owe I owe, I can't remember the seven drawer. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I got to pay him back. And he's saying that is not what God did in adoption. He isn't looking for you to pay him back. He's looking to bless you and everything you do. There is no condemnation. You are now my son. I'm yours, you're mine. And we're going to finish this thing together to the very end. When the world is burning up in a ball of fire, we will be with our Father in heaven in His home, like His family. Amazing. It produces new obligations. Look at verse 12 and 13. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, this is the word adelphoi and it's the plural of man, And we, in in your ESV translation, it says brothers. But it's a good translation. It's a gender-neutral translation. And in this case, it's good. This is why pastors are paid enormous, ridiculous amounts of money. Because we know this secret stuff. But when you translate Greek, this is one of the places where you should translate it, brothers and sisters. It's a gender-neutral expression okay? Even though it's in the male tense, got it? You have no obligation, in other words, you're not in debt any longer to do what your sinful nature urges. It's still present. The New Testament never says it disappears. No, it's still present. But you do not have to listen to it. You have power now, the power of Holy Spirit, the power of the new birth living in you where you can say no. No. Sin is hard work. It's a slave master. I've told you this, but it we will just grind you down, leave you hollowed out, and leave you at the end to die in the grave with nothing. That's where sin takes us. It promises, it overpromises, but it not only underperforms; it doesn't perform at all. It just leaves you empty, hollowed out, nothing left. But the declaration of no condemnation. And the deeds of Jesus Christ, what he talks about in the first part of chapter 1 of Romans, or chapter 8 of Romans, utterly erases this obligation. Someone else took on that obligation for you. Not just for you, as you, in your place, as if you had paid. And brings you back as if you had done everything right. It's nutty. It's crazy. Scholars like Packer and others say that this is what's missing in the church. We don't really believe that we're sons of God. That he really has adopted us. He's truly done this. One Greek uh, scholar said this. The Christian is not within the sphere or domination of the evil nature. You're not. It's not there. You're in the presence, but you're not under its domination. It'll lie to you and tell you, you've got to do this. You don't have any choice. I mean, your help, you've been doing this all your life. And God will forgive you. Don't worry. What a lie. What a stinking lie. Sounds like the Garden of Eden. You're not under the sphere of the dominion of the evil nature, the power of that which has been broken now within You are within the sphere, the dominion of Holy Spirit. You're under no obligation to the evil nature to live under its dominion. Does it still lie to it? Do we still believe? Yes. But the the controlling power of our life is no longer that evil nature. It shows up. It gives us fits. But we are now under the domination of a new nature. And even when you don't feel like it, and folks, sometimes you just don't. You feel like, man, I am such a sinner. There's just no way. Chuck's lying. He's lying. And so is the Apostle Paul. See, I want to make sure you lump me in with him. Our positioning and our standing before God is forever changed. We are born again, and we are in union with Christ. Do we sin? Yes. Do we, make, do we do terrible things? Yes. But we also have the power to do great things. And instead of thinking just always how bad, how bad, how bad, why don't we start orienting ourselves to what good can I do? I'll, even when I'm messed up, I can still do some good. This is where things like life groups and the journey and, and other things. I mean you get involved in one of these groups and you find out that there's more to life than just this little cloister of people hiding at Christ the King in this building in a bank. I mean we didn't we went out for the, we went the whole way so nobody could get in here and hurt us. We bought a bank. And so we can hunker and bunker and nobody can hurt us in here. We're like little clams in a shell. We can peek out, is it safe? And then scurry out there to the next Bible study. Oh, good, good. And then run back. Oh, I'm safe, I'm safe. That isn't what he's talking about. He's talking about suffering. We'll get to that in a moment. He gives us a new ability. Look at the second part of 13, but if through the power of the spirit you put to deed the deeds you put to death the deeds of the sinful nature, you will live. What he's saying is, very clearly he's already said it, you cannot kill your old nature. You can't put yourself to death. He does that for you out of love. He crucifies the old man on the cross of Jesus Christ. He raises that new man woman from the grave, a new being born again. He's the one that does that. Then He says to you, I'm giving you the power, I'm giving you the presence, I'm giving you the ability of the Holy Spirit, now you spend the rest of your life putting to death the deeds of that old nature. At whatever cost, put it to death. Do you see what it did to you? Do you see what it can do to you now? Put it to death. Fight it. Go at it with everything you have. With the Holy Spirit, for goodness sake. Unbelievable. Beautiful. We can. We cannot put our old nature to death, but we can do something about our deeds. And so often we just lay back and we say, I'm helpless. I can't do anything. Woes me. And after all, I'm just a terrible sinner. But you are. But you're more than that. All right, look at 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons. He uses the word huyaz, the plural of son. And this is one time, and many times this is true, the gender neutral is terrible. He meant sons, he meant male sons, and every woman in this church should stand up especially the Presbyterian women, stand up and shout hallelujah that he, were, he used the word sons. And that translators in this version that I gave you, the NLT, they make the mistake of making it gender neutral and putting brothers and sisters. It's not that, it's sons. Ladies, it is sons listen to this nobody explains it like Tim Keller he just and so I can't can't do any better listen amazing throughout the passage Christians are called sons sons of God and three times called children technon this is another word and he does use those in these verses a generic word for children In our day, only gender-neutral language, children, is considered appropriate. And referring to men and women with a masculine pronoun, sons, is considered insensitive. Listen. Some people studying this passage may express this as a concern, but we should not try to correct, correct the Scriptures. Amen. This is what... You don't correct this. He was doing this on purpose. In the other writing of Paul, he says there's no male, there's no male. He knew what he was doing when he said sons. Listen. Using the masculine pronoun sons is considered insensitive. Some people say that it's insensitive, but it's true. Listen. That sonship was in Rome this culture that Paul was writing to, a status and privilege and power given only to males. Yet, Paul has the temerity to apply this to all of us, all believers. This shows that God does not distinguish in giving honor to just men. All Christians, male and female, are now heirs in this same way as a son, full, complete. It was a subversive thing for Paul to take a masculine-only institution and show that in Christ... The institution of empowering, empowering through adoption, is used on females and for females as well. Do you see what he's saying? Paul intentionally does this. He said, ladies, you are now sons, just the way all the males are sons. full." Rights, the way that it's meant in context, it's meant in context of this Roman world that was misogynistic and, and unbelievable in its treatment of women. And Paul is saying, ladies, you are now sons of God. Daughters? Oh, absolutely. But your status is the same as a son. All the rights, all the privileges that go with sonship now accrue to males and females, without distinction. Listen, Keller goes on, Christian women should not chafe by being called sons any more than Christian men should chafe at being called brides. Ephesians chapter 5, don't you love that? I mean, men, we are brides of Christ, fellas. You know, you're going to wear a wedding gown one of these days. I don't know what you're going to look like. I think I will fill it out just fine, but I don't know about the rest of you. Again, I worry about Ugo, what's it going to look like in that wedding dress. We are all sons. We are all brides, Keller says. Each metaphor, this is beautiful. This is, this is the best biblical exegesis you'll ever hear in your life. Each metaphor tells us something about our relationship with God. You see, we're brides, we're sons, we're sheep, we're children, technon, we're children. We're all of those metaphors. We're a flock. We're a family. We're slaves. Every word enriches who we are, tells us who we are, explains to us who we are, because He knows we're living in the presence of sin. He knows it's going to be hard. And so he builds layer after layer after layer of this exquisite reality of the gospel so that you can live. Not just suffering, oh poor me, and you're just diving ground into the ground, and Christianity is such a burden. No, so that you can be lifted up and share in his glory. Look at 16 and 17. For his spirit joins our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. This is technon. It is gender, and it means all of us are his children. And since we are children, we are his heirs, together with Christ, heirs of his glory, but also heirs of his suffering. He's not talking about the kind of suffering that we often think about. Life's not going well, my checkbook's empty, all that. That's not... He's thinking about what it's going to take to live a life in the presence of sin with this tension inside of every believer, this immense tension. And he's saying to you and I, will you trust me? Will you keep going? When things look bad, when you are just nailed to the ground and everything like Nancy Guthrie talks about losing her two children. She says, it just hollows you out. There's nothing left. And it's then, it's then that you have to say, I'm living in the presence of sin, but sin is not my, my, my essence is not the controlling thing. The controlling thing in me is the Holy Spirit and the fact that I am a child of God. And that gives, it puts wind in our sails, folks. Even when we're just laying there dead in the water and nothing and you just think, man, there's just no way to go forward. And what is my life anyway? Chuck just said I was, you know, two or three generations we're all gone. That's true. What in the world is going to sustain you? Where is the anchor for our soul? Together with Christ, listen. Together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Joint heirs with Jesus. We're, we're with him. And he's with us all the way through, every moment. You're never alone. You're never forsaken. Only Jesus was forsaken. You who trust in Him will never be forsaken, not one second in your life. The moment you breathe your last breath and close your eyes, you will not go into darkness. You will be absorbed into His light, and there He will be greeting you as the angels usher you in and all of that is true whether we know or we suffer yeah but it's true and if it's not true then it's meaningless life is meaningless but if it is true then you've got something working in you you've got a power in you that can move you forward especially when life has hollowed you out and Paul knows he's going to talk about this suffering more the rest of the chapter. What it is to be in this world and to suffer like this. Our suffering, folks, doesn't atone for sin. But our suffering, our willingness to put, lay down our lives for others can make a... You can save somebody. You can bring them out of darkness and into the light Will you trust Him. Will you? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, you've given us an amazing task to try to live in this life in the presence of sin. I don't know. But we thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit. We thank you for adopting us as children. We never want to take it for granted or, or presume upon that adoption, but rather live in it and out of it live our lives out of our adoption and our justification. Help us, Father, to do that. And as we come to your table this morning, I ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith. This table, above almost everything, represents our adoption, our place at your table. You only invite your your beloved to share your meal. Help us, Father. In Christ's name, amen.